When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcasts person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Many in the world see the influence of the United States as a force for good. It applies pressure on authoritarian regimes such as Iran to abide by human rights, and it supports nations such as Ukraine defending themselves against imperial aggression. But others argue that the Afghanistan and Iraq wars show that American exceptionalism and the attempt to play the world's policemen have wreaked havoc with the rest of the world, which is still paying a price for America's foreign policy. So this week, ahead of Tuesday's midterm elections in the United States, on the Sunday debate, we're asking, is America a force for good in the world? To debate the issue, we're joined by foreign policy expert and author of The Problem of Democracy, Shadi Hamid, and academic and author of Humane, Samuel Moyne. Our host for the debate is journalist and broadcaster, Philippa Thomas. The episode is in two parts, so join us on Wednesday to hear part two of the debate. Here's Philippa with more. Is American foreign policy a force for good or is it damaging the world? What do you think about its impact? In a moment, our two speakers will make their opening statements to try to persuade you. Then I'll take your questions and encourage some debate between the speakers. We'll end our debate this hour with two short closing statements. And then I'm going to invite you all to make another vote, uh, which I will announce. So pretty much time for me to stop talking. I'm going to introduce uh, our speakers one by one so you can hear their opening statements. And our first speaker is Shadi Hamid. I'm sure you probably know, also senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, contributor for The Atlantic Uh, His books include Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World, and his new book is The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, 
and the rise and fall of an idea. Shadi also co-hosts the podcast Wisdom of Crowds, which examines why bad people believe what they believe. And uh, Shadi, we're giving you about five minutes to talk about whether we should see America as a force for good in the world. Over to you. Great. Uh, thanks, Philippa. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's get right to it. So I was a freshman in college when 9-11 happened. And I think for my generation, our formative experience was one in which American power was used for destructive ends. And two endless wars for starters, that's the most obvious example. So all of this meant that I viewed America's role in a primarily negative light because it was negative. And in the Middle East, despite all the grandiose rhetoric about democracy, the U.S. did continue supporting some of the world's most repressive regimes. And I think for those on the left, this was nothing new. It was kind of self-evident. I was more of a leftist in college, and I spent my, uh, spent my years reading Noam Chomsky and other leftist critics of U.S. foreign policy. And let's be honest, they weren't entirely wrong. America may have been a force for good in some places at some times, but at other times and in other regions, it had been anything but. So I'm not arguing that America is a force for good in some kind of absolute sense. There are no absolutes in politics. My argument is that America is a force for good relative to all the other possibilities before us. And this is the only rubric that matters because we live in the real world, and this real world has a number of challengers and competitors. If the U.S. falls, it will be a country like China that fills the vacuum. That's what's at stake. So without America as a hegemonic force, China will further expand its economic and military influence, and this time there will be no one to counter it. So it's auspicious timing that we're having this debate today because I think you know, 2022 was the year that skeptics of American power got a taste of what a post-American world might actually look like. We have China's aggression towards Taiwan, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think these things help put matters in perspective. So one question I would pose is, in light of what we've seen, can anyone really argue still that the U.S. is a uniquely malevolent force in global politics? I would suggest that the answer to that is no. Let me take the argument one step further. Not only is the U.S. preferable to the available alternatives, but also the United States is better. And we are better because we are a democracy for all of our flaws. And, you know, as I argue in my book, which is called The Problem of Democracy, um, and I think there is also a solution. Well, the divide between democracy and autocracy is fundamental. It's key to this conversation. Um, it cuts to the core of what it means to be a human being. Dictatorships, they elevate the nation and the leader as ultimate ends. Individuals have no inherent worth beyond their service to the state. And we're seeing that in Russia today, for example, with hundreds of thousands of Russian men leaving for precisely this reason. Authoritarianism corrupts society and it twists the soul, and it makes humans other than what God intended them to be. Now, that might all sound a bit grandiose, but I want to just translate that into practicalities as I begin to wrap up here. The fact that one country was democratic and claimed that it was better because it was democratic provided a very real demonstration effect. 
the more the U.S. eclipsed the Soviet Union, the more pro-democracy forces were strengthened. And if you don't believe me, consider the counterfactual. Imagine if the Soviet Union had somehow beaten the U.S. during the Cold War. Well, the third wave of democratization in the 1990s probably would have never happened. And also, just more broadly, the fact that America was a superpower and is a super superpower has been central to the expansion of democracy across the globe. We can look at the numbers. By the end of World War II, only around 8% of countries were democratic. As of 2020, according to the VDEM index, the figure had increased to over 50%. That's a massive increase. The interesting thing, though, is most of this remarkable growth took place during and after the decline of the Soviet Union. In other words, it was only when American power was unrivaled that democracy truly took hold. What about hypocrisy? And this is where I'll close up. One of the most consistent charges against the U.S. is that it says one thing but does another. It's true. I agree with that. But even here, hypocrisy is better than the alternative. Uh, the French author Rochefoucauld once said that hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. And I think he was on to something. After all, it's difficult to betray one's ideals if one doesn't have any to begin with. And so for the United States, the charge of hypocrisy is effective because it speaks to something true. Yes, we are hypocritical. On the other hand, consider China or Russia. No one accuses China of hypocrisy because it backs friendly dictators. That would make little sense. No one expects China to promote democracy abroad. No one expects China to be better. So there isn't a gap. And so in this sense, trying to be better, at least having the possibility of being better, that leads to hypocrisy, but that is one of the costs of trying to be moral. Or to put it differently, insofar as hypocrisy points to an aspiration that isn't met, at least the aspiration remains. And for me, this is better than the alternative. Thank you. Shadi Hamid, thank you, arguing that on balance, the US is a force for good in the world. Now, uh, remember, we're going to ask for your questions. Uh, we can also encourage you to join the debate on Twitter where the hashtag is IQ2. But listen first to our next speaker, Samuel Moyne, uh, is going to also have an introductory statement. Samuel is Chancellor Kent Professor of Law and History at Yale University, and his areas of interest in legal scholarship include international law, human rights, the law of war, and Sam's most recent book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and reinvented war. So for the next five minutes, Sam, the floor is yours. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, there are worse alternatives to American hegemony and power. There's no doubt about that. But there are also better alternatives, better imaginable alternatives and alternatives. It's our obligation to envision and bring about because the harsh truth is this, that in its unipolar moment, after 1989, America squandered an enormous chance to advance universal values. Now, of course, Shadi is right that there has been a wave of democratization under America's watch eventually. It actually started in the 1970s, and it's been in retreat lately. But I don't think America gets credit for that democratization, certainly not in every case. 
After all, it was mainly the fact that the Soviet Union disappeared that led a lot of countries to choose liberal democracy and often demand it on their own terms. What America did, if we're talking about its foreign policy, was not helpful and in two big ways. First, its militarism. During the Cold War, the United States intervened in a lot of places and set humanity back. Actually, its military interventionism increased after 1989. It wasn't just the two disastrous wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. It was the war on terror more broadly and a global security net that was technologized through drones and surveillance uh, and remains, I think, sadly, our principal legacy in military terms. And I think we shouldn't restrict our attention when we think about our militarism to just direct interventions, because the United States also supervises the global arms trade. Most wars are fought with American weapons. And of course, it also fights proxy wars. But I would look beyond the military history of the period since 1989, in which America has done so much harm to so many people, to its broader foreign policy which was really not about spreading democracy. It was really about spreading what we call neoliberalism. Like its great predecessor, the United Kingdom uh, in the 19th century, the United States stood most of all, not for free self-government, but for freedom of transaction. And this had massive, and I think we can now see terrible effects on the fate of democracy worldwide. If we begin to ask why so many people are tempted in our day to throw democracy overboard, it's because of the consequences of the fact that America chose its unipolar moment as one when it would be a neoliberal power, advancing the interests not of all, but of the rich on the world stage. There's one last reason I think we should conclude that America squandered its moment in the sun after the Cold War, its moment of unipolarity, and that's that it failed even in the most basic task for any state that wants to present itself as universal, and that's to be an exemplar or a model society. We now can see very clearly that America did not make itself globally appealing enough, in part because of the terrible legacies of hierarchy that it's failed really to overcome, as uh, current history demonstrates. It's very hard to think that America can be a credible standard bearer for liberalism or democracy when its people are driven to elect Donald Trump. Now, I'll close with a couple of remarks about Russia and China, because, of course, it would be worse if they filled a vacuum. But that's not going to happen. We know that in some sense, we have uh, a shifting scene in which there's not going to be unipolarity anymore, but multipolarity. Russia is not a major challenger to the world order the United States has been, although it's engaged in noxious behavior recently in its own neighborhood. We don't know what China wants to do and will do as it ascends 
uh, to rival the United States, as it has been doing. What we can say is that the American choice to have the first Cold War was an outrage for humanity. It wasn't about supporting democracy, except in some places and in the narrowest sense. And it incurred carnage on a world scale. Why we would think that the idea of democracy demands a confrontational view of our future relationship with Chinese power is beyond me. And it just seems to me that it would involve repeating the errors that America has been making, not just during the Cold War, but since. Our hope, I think, lies in the creation of a better alternative, of which America has to be a part. But we can't rest content with American power as it has functioned in the last decades. Samuel, thank you. I'm feeling confident that we're going to get questions and comments on this. Uh, and part of the reason is that you both have a job to do in convincing a large segment of the audience. Before we unpack a little bit of what you've said, I want to reveal the results of our first vote, which showed that when we're looking at the question, is the US on balance a force for good in the world? 35% of you out there say yes. 38% say no. 27% are undecided. I think that's pretty high. Uh, and so it shows that there's a challenge, but there's also an opportunity for both our speakers right now. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. I want to give you a chance to pick up on what each other has said, but I want to lob something in there first because it strikes me that the terms in which we we are speaking are those of great power politics and who is the force for good in the world. But the matter of climate change and existential challenge and the role that the US is playing or not doesn't seem to be part of this canvas. And that might be the way that we have framed the question, but I'm interested that it doesn't seem to be part of part of the issue. Sam, I'm going to ask you to speak to that first. I, I think that's a really important element to add to the debate. And I would argue it's it's part of my story of the misplaced priorities of the United States, along with its Western allies in the recent period. Because obviously, these states that have mainly been exporting, if not war, than a certain version of markets have been the greatest polluters. They don't just remain so, but they have been in history, and they account for the climate change that we're experiencing now. And so part of the debate about what an appealing and sustainable economic model that we would want to connect with the universal values I think Shadi and I both believe in would have to connect to an environmentally sustainable outcome. So just mindless pro-growth policies, which America has stood behind in recent decades, are absolutely part of this conversation because we need to figure out how to have growth fairly distributed since China wants its turn to enjoy it while allowing the planet to survive growth. 
in the long term. Shadi, you've said America a force for good in the world relative to the other options we have, even with my bigger picture. Does that still hold? Yeah, yeah. So I think this gets at a pretty fundamental point. America is a force for good because we're capable of changing and learning and self-correcting because we are a democracy. I don't believe China can be or become better because of the nature of its regime. And we're already seeing signs of this, where as time passes, China becomes more and more a one-man personalistic regime. And one that also, we should mention, commits genocide against its Muslim minority. Um, and I don't think anyone would pretend that the U.S. is is quite at that level of badness. So, uh, you know, in that sense, America always holds within it the possibility of other possibilities. So on climate change, if we feel that we're not doing enough, that's probably true. But it's up to voters. It's up to people going to the ballot box to ask their representatives to prioritize that. And this gets, I think, to... Part of what Sam mentioned, the rise of Donald Trump, does that make American democracy less appealing? Perhaps that's one way of looking at it. But for me, the election of Donald Trump and the fact that he was voted out of office shows that American democracy is resilient. We had a major test to our democracy and we survived and not just survived. I think that in some ways, we may even become stronger. We'll have to wait and see, and I can't guarantee that. But the fact that there are flaws, the fact that we don't always do good, I don't think is an argument against the democratic model, because what is democracy after all? Democracy is the right to make the wrong choice. So if we vote for Donald Trump, then in some ways that should be instructed to other countries that they can vote for bad people too, but that doesn't negate the democratic idea. And I think on the on the the most broad level in terms of great power competition, I do think contrary to what Sam suggested that democracies and autocracies are mutually irreconcilable. And this I think is an important thing to add because if we don't believe that China can be better because of its regime type, then we can't be optimistic about a better kind of multipolar world where the U.S. and China share power. I think also if we look at the bipolar world we had during the Cold War, when in some ways the U.S. and the Soviet Union had spheres of influence, that led the U.S. to support right-wing anti-communist governments in Latin America. Why? Because we were so obsessed with pushing back the Soviet Union. So that's why we don't want to go to a bipolar world where everything is about a direct confrontation with China. So before China rises to us to to be on a closer level with the US, now is the time to make sure that China doesn't actually fill the vacuum, that China doesn't become equivalent to the Soviet Union and how it was during the Cold War. And now is the time to act. Now is the time, of course, when Americans are voting again. You know, the midterm season is, is upon us. And Sam, I'd like you to address that that thought about the bounce back ability of thriving American democracy or where we happen to be and how much the States is a role model for the world. Well, I actually agree with Shadi up to a point that the Donald Trump years were not a referendum on American democracy. You're both speaking about them in the past tense. That's right. Well, we haven't gotten to 2024. We're only in 2022. 
Shadi is right that America did not come to the brink in the years of 2016 to 2022. But that doesn't mean that we should accept the low bar of survival as our aspirations for what America should stand for, and especially for what it should export. I actually would give Trump some credit while in office for trying to at least withdraw American troops from certain endless wars, even as he perpetuated others. But as with his you know, broader thinking, I think Shadi is setting a really low bar for America or the West as if as long as it's doing something that's preferable to an autocracy or totalitarian state, then it gets a pass. Well, that's not how politics works. There's a range of options. In 2022, to come to your question, there's a referendum on the Democrats in power for two years, and it does look like it's not going to go well for the Democrats, which doesn't mean that 2022 is going to be a prelude to Trump's return, although that could happen. If the 2022 elections go as we expect, I think we have to conclude that the Democrats squandered their chance in power to present an appealing model of democracy to their own people who are going to vote, uh, it seems, for a lot of misrepresentations. And that is very scary. And it doesn't mean that something terrible couldn't happen, although Shadi's right. And I've also argued that we shouldn't overstate America's own democratic backsliding. But it's much more important to think about what we should stand for and what the what the Democrats, if, the, if we want them to win, should achieve with with the, to their time in power and what America should achieve as its unipolar moment wanes. And I think we're far further into that process than Shadi is willing to admit. Shadi, are you guilty of setting a really low bar? Well, I suppose it's all relative, but let me try to higher the bar a little bit. Um, so, you know, it's funny that, you know, when I talk to my my white American friends and I say something like, I love America, increasingly they look at me as if I'm crazy. Like, how could you possibly be saying that at the current moment? And I think that one reason I'm optimistic about America and its role in the world is because of the children of immigrants, because of basically people of color, brown people, brownish people like me, because we still have a faith in the American idea. When I look at my white liberal elite friends, they're always perpetually in this mode of self-doubt. And, you know, that's their prerogative. But because I saw what America offered to my parents, to my family, that gives me a little bit of a different perspective. So the self-loathing, I think, is, and not to say that Sam is, Sam is not doing this, but I do think that there, there is a lot of this discourse that uh, I think doesn't give America a fair shake. And even if I compare America today in 2022 compared to after 9-11, I know which period I would choose, the latter. People can easily forget after 9-11, there was very little room for dissent. Everyone was on a war footing, both Democrats and Republicans. To be part of the anti-war movement, which I was when I was at Georgetown as an undergrad, was to be in a lonely place. And now we have a very vigorous debate. We have voices like Sam that are eloquently making the case that America isn't a force for good. And that has mainstream appeal in a way that it didn't post 
um, Muslims have become more normalized in American politics. I'm an American Muslim. So to see how we were treated, how we were looked at post 9-11 compared to the normalization that I, I'm very happy to be seeing, for example, the, uh, the, the highest ranking Muslim elected Muslim official in American history could be a Trump endorsed candidate, Mahmoud Oz in Pennsylvania. I don't like Mahmoud Oz, but it's interesting to me that someone like him could be endorsed by Donald Trump, so on and so forth. So, you know, it depends how we look at some of these issues, glass half full, half empty. I think there's a lot more of it that, that's full than we let on. The episode is in two parts, so join us on Wednesday to hear part two of the debate. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.